everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. My name is Caleb Mason, and I am so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today, I'm honored to be joined by returning guest, Dr. Terrence Lester, to talk with him about his brand new book, All God's Children, How Confronting Buried History Can Build Racial solidarity we also get into a lot of just what's been going on with him over the the past year or so and uh we'll we'll save that for uh the conversation but yeah if you've been listening to the podcast for a while or if you consider yourself a lifelong learner you know i would recommend that you check out my Substack, where i give a bunch of recommendations for all of the things that i am currently learning from and some of the things I'm learning about, whether that be uh, movies or music or podcasts or basically anything that is just making me think, intriguing me, engaging my curiosity. I try to give bunches of recommendations for some of the things that I am uh, learning about. And again, you could go onto the Substack and uh, check that out. And they come out. uh, I'll say uh, on, on a on a regular basis, working on getting that a little bit more consistent right now. But if you're looking for some good uh, learning recommendations, you can check out uh, some things there. Now, as I mentioned, Terrence has been on the podcast before and really enjoyed our last conversation and uh, his last book as well. And so whenever I found out that he was coming out with this new book, I definitely wanted to reach out and have him back on the podcast because one of the things that I really appreciate about Terrence is his his desire to continue to figure out how do we love our neighbors better and how do we love how do we love God better how do we love our neighbors better and how do we love ourselves better and that's a lot of what our conversation is going to uh, dive into today now let me tell you a little bit about Terrence and then we're going to jump into our conversation So Terrence Lester is the founder of Love Beyond Walls, a not-for-profit organization focused on poverty awareness and community mobilization. His work has been featured in USA Today, Black Enterprise, Essence, Reader's Digest, The Today Show, and Good Morning America. And he was named by Coca-Cola as one of their history shakers. And his previous books include I See You and When We Stand. And he currently lives with his family in Atlanta, Georgia. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, Terrence, it is good to have you back on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Hey, look, it is a honor and a privilege to be back. Here we are again, my friend. Here here we are again. And you have a new book that that I really want to dig into. But before that, just as I was uh, preparing for our conversation, I was scrolling through uh, your Twitter and I came across this quote and I just found myself just resonating with it so much. Uh, and I'll read it here in a second, but uh, I would just love to have you expound and maybe talk uh, a little bit more about it. And what you wrote is you said, this past year has taught me to value my time because it's not promised and my peace 
because life can be overwhelming and anything that seeks to disrupt or waste those is no longer for me. Would you mind kind of talking about the backstory to that quote and what's led you to make that that shift or that movement in your life? Yeah. Uh, May 14th, 2023, which was also Mother's Day, um, was bittersweet. Uh, that morning, I woke up and I was overwhelmed, but yet grateful uh, that my wife and I were still here and we would be able to celebrate her. Um, a year prior to that date, uh, the exact date, uh, we were out to eat uh, May 14, 2022, celebrating with friends. Uh, a major accomplishment for the organization that we co-founded love beyond walls and we left there i asked my wife if she would drive we hopped in a car i fell asleep in a passenger seat i woke up on the ground with emts running over to my body and i heard one yell out flip him over to see if he's still alive um i blacked out again i came to i saw my wife limping around a mangled car and I blacked out, woke up again. And I am now in a hospital with doctors standing over me saying that they had to do emergency surgery because I broke both my hip and my spine, not my spine, but my hip and my pelvis. And the femur was close to a nerve in my spine. And that led to me being in the hospital for a month after a 10 hour surgery, uh, going through months of not learning, not being able to walk, um, living with a disability, having to learn how to walk again, having my wife as my primary caregiver, going all, all through the experiences of people um, mistreating me because of my disability when I would go out with my family the whole nine. And um, I had to work really hard to remember that my worth was not defined by mobility and that God still had a great value in just the breaths that I was taking, not based on my productivity or what I could do out in the world but just simply because I was alive and Jesus was real, right? And so I walked through all of that. And then over the course of the year, I woke up that morning and I started to reflect on, man, uh, life is like a vapor, as James writes. And, you know, peace is really important because life is overwhelming, no matter what social location you come from. And if any of those things or anything is trying to take away those things, like your your peace and the, the preciousness of the time that God has given you, then that's why I made the statement, it's not for me. And that can be defined in anything, man. It's, I'm not, I don't care about success. I don't care about people's opinions. I don't care about any of those things people trying to use or like finagle or any of that stuff, man, it's, it just doesn't mean 
anything to me. What matters is that I am alive, that I get a chance to commune with Jesus and serve and love my family. That's it. You know, you, you mentioned uh, the mistreatments that you went through whenever you were experiencing your disability. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, there was on several occasions uh, being out in public where I would, I remember the first time my family took me out to eat and it was really hard for me because, you know, I am trying to gather the confidence to go out in public in a wheelchair and to use my walker and to be around people in a social uh, space. And we go out and I'll never forget. Uh, first of all, when we got there, it was very hard for me to get into the building and like people were standing around because we were trying to figure out how to get in the door and people were blowing their breath and like making all of these like uh, um, very uncomfortable statements underneath their breath. And then finally this gentleman comes up and helps my family get me through the door. Um, the restaurant was designed in a way where it wasn't accommodating to someone who was in a wheelchair. And so a lot of people got upset because they had to get up out of their seats and move. And, and finally I get to the table and then I'm sitting there enjoying breakfast with my family. And, um, I talked to my wife and my kids. I said, I want to try to get up out of my wheelchair and use my walker to go to the restroom. And this is really, it's hard for me, bro, because it's the first time I'm out in public again, just like trying to, in many cases, use my strength uh, to move around uh, and have the confidence with uh, a walker. And I get up and I'm using my walker and I'm like slowly uh, walking to the restroom because I'm still trying to regain strength in my leg and move around. And I look over um, like to the right and I see this, uh, this parent was sitting with her child mocking me, like mimicking me. They're both laughing at me as I'm struggling to get by like the little between tables and the little spaces and stuff. I finally make it and I get back and my, my wife saw it and so did my kids. And we were just like deeply impacted by that moment. But it made me think about how ableism is a part of the culture and how people have a very um, deep-seated fear, even um, dislike, and uh, in many ways, uh, a very vow posture towards those who are living with a disability, you know, and it was just like, gut-wrenching for me. So I, I share this story not to take up most of the podcast about this story, but this story is central, uh, even with talking about this book, because 
here it is, I'm, you know, contracted to write this book and this book is supposed to come out and I had deadlines. And you want to know when I was working on the, the finished product, when I couldn't walk. After going through those types of experiences and having to sit with the reality that we live in a world where solidarity isn't as apparent for um, those who have been excluded in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I do want to touch on uh, the book. One of the things I want to follow up on that you mentioned is you talked about um, your your mobility being tied to your sense of worth and your sense of identity. Can you talk like what helped you with that? Like whenever you were like, whenever you were immobile and yeah, what helped you with that? Yeah, that's a great question. I was, uh, man, you know, in the, nonprofit ministerial whatever space you want to use that is a part of some type of public service or the helping profession like the whole space is centered around movement the ability to fundraise the ability to move people uh or gather people you're using your mobility to serve the community in some way and um, you know, mobility becomes central to the idea of both impact and productivity and the ability to, um, raise capital, so to speak, to sustain, you know, a work. And I found myself without being able to do that. I couldn't work, you know, I couldn't move around, um, I was in so much pain that I was prescribed almost 20, 20 plus pills just to cope with the pain. Right. Mm. And, you know, there was this real daunting reality of having to grapple with the question of who am I? Who am I now that I can't actively go out and be in community? Who am I when I can't? fundraise? Who am I when, you know, um, I'm I'm unable to do some of the things that I once defined as being something that contributed to my sense of self-worth. Um, and even not even knowing that I had allowed it to get to that point and then coming to the place where I'm not no longer able to move. And I'll never forget it. I was crying, bro. Like I was in tears because I could not move. I'm laying in bed and I'm um, about to have a conversation with my, uh, my professor, because I'm also, I was also at the time uh, during working on my dissertation and I'm about to quit school and I'm telling my wife I'm about to quit school and I'm uh, in the last semester. And I I look at my wife one day and I say, I don't think I have anything left. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And she says, you may not be able to move around, but you still can use your mind. And you may not be able to move like you used to, but your worth has never been defined by movement. Uh, 
your worth is just your worth because you're you. Hmm. And that reminded me of like just this great love of God that bro. I mean, it's overwhelming, man. I, I get emotional. I'm emotional now talking about it because it's hitting me mm -hmm. again because it's like the love of God is so great that you don't, you literally have to do nothing <laughs> yeah. to receive it, right? Yeah. And that's the good news. And it just reminded me of that good news that is grounded in the the person of Jesus. So, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. I mean, I'm, I'm getting a little emotional just seeing you just because like I, I, I resonate with that feeling so strongly. It's, it's unconditional love is yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. Mm. You know, uh, I, I want to go back to the, some of the shifts that you've made for your piece. And I think this also ties into your book Yeah. as well and what it's about. You know, I, I would love to hear what are some of the, what's some of the things that you've changed just to, to help strengthen your peace of mind. Like I could think of, you know, for me, just an example this past weekend, I was just seeing, you know, this is a huge surprise. I was seeing just a lot of controversy on Twitter and I was like, uh, you know what? I'm getting too emotionally wrapped in this. I need to mute some people and I need to, uh, get away from this for a little bit. And I, I'd, I'd just be curious to hear what are some of the shifts that you've made or some of the things that you've done to help, I mean, really just to help your mental health and to help your peace. Yeah, man, I. I. There was a there is a point when I first got into the hospital and. I knew I was going to have to do like uh, occupational therapy, physical therapy, etc., and. Uh, a gentleman that I had met years ago who is a a doctor um, who works in the physical th therapy space reached out to my family and um, he has his own practice. And literally when I got out of the hospital, he asked his family if he could come and spend time with me on Sundays. And for almost three and a half months, almost every Sunday, he would come to my house for four or five hours, sit with me, talk to me, uh, help me work through the pain, uh, the physical therapy, and just out of that proximity uh, became one of my, not only one of my closest friends, but a, um, you know, uh, just a huge encourager. And along the way, we would have these conversations around uh, this idea of tiredness and weariness and burnout and stress and overthinking and anxiety and all of those things. And I remember the importance uh, that I learned that when I literally felt tired in my body or I was feeling some type of anxiousness, that it was okay to give my precision, myself this space to rest, right? Mm -hmm. And rest looks totally different at various times. Rest could be walk. Rest could be muting accounts. 
Rest could be, you know, exercise in many ways, moving the body in a way that allows the body to release uh, stress. Uh, rest could even be in the form of prayer. Um, uh, rest could be in writing. Rest could be in meditation. Rest could even be in cutting screen time, where it's not just muting accounts, but unplugging from devices that become divisive, <laughs> you know, um, rest could be worship, uh, rest could be napping. Right. Um, I think about, um, this book, uh, from, uh, uh, a black woman who started the nap ministry and she wrote a book talking about nap naps or resting being resistance, active resistance against oppression or stress in the body, et cetera. And so like, I think that I really centered in on this rest and then realizing that rest isn't monolithic, um, that you have to find your rhythm of rest that speaks to where you are in your, your social location. Yeah. What's, what's one of your favorite forms of rest? Yeah. Um, exercise, now that I, I can uh, do that again, uh, writing um, became a form of rest. Um, I love to uh, laugh and create memories with my family. Mm -hmm. um, prayer and worship music. And uh, I think sleeping is probably uh at the bottom but when i can i love to get a good nap as well yeah yeah uh you know as uh as as we move to you know talking about your your brand new book all god's children one of the one of the sentences that i just have to ask you about uh is you say i never thought i'd write a uh, a book on race it wasn't in the plans at all what shifted for you? What made you go, okay, I need to write this book? Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I mean, I've always known that there's a lot of intersection between, you know, race, class, um, you know, especially in how we see those things working out today uh and i you know for a long while it was just like i want to focus on poverty those who are unhoused you know showing up in ways where i could advocate on behalf of this particular group and i think it was around the ending of 2019 leading into 2020, um, we started to see trends of more racial unrest uh, in the US, which became magnified uh, during the wake of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, Arbery, uh, compounding that with COVID and people like not having anywhere to go and having sort of like the blinders or the scales ripped off uh, and really having a front row seat in the realities of what 
black and brown people experience. And I was still on the front lines um, because many of the people that we were serving who were impoverished were in fact black people. And while we are seeing um, this virus kind of unfold, we're also seeing uh, this racialized uh, violence that's happening, right? And people in our community uh, started to really at, seek me out for answers and, and kind of like unpack that. And I would do the best that I could to explain um, from a historical lens, like what is happening and what we're seeing. Um, but it wasn't until I got home and we're downstairs, my wife and I are watching the news and the image of George Floyd with a knee on his neck was on the screen. And uh, I broke down. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I broke down is because it was around that time there were a lot of protests happening. Uh, I mean, we saw all of the tanks and my son is nine years old. He walks in the room and he sees tanks on the screen that are different from the ones that he were used to playing with. And he asked me what's going on. It was at that very moment that I realized that the talk that I had with my parents, my uncles, my coaches about the reality of being a black boy, I remember those vivid conversations. Now I'm in the driver's seat. And I'm having to talk to my nine-year-old son about what it means to truly be black. And that just... It um it hit me, man. You know? Mm -hmm. Because uh it made me reflect on my upbringing, uh, my experiences, my experiences every day that I go through still as a black man who is trying to do the will of God, right? Um and I, I wanted to to write about that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think uh, one of one of the most powerful ideas, at least for me, that you write about in there is you talk about the importance of us understanding people's first their personal history, and then just the like the like our collective history, yeah, as well. And I would love for you to just touch on like. I'd love to know what is what is something like personally that you wish that people knew more about, you know, you could say racism, diversity, anti-racism, you know, just everything in that. Um, and then I'd love to just have you follow up on what's some of the historical things that you wish that more people knew about as well. Yeah, I mean, that... <sighs> That that's a real it's a loaded question. <laughs> you know, I I would say there is a um a deep desire, I know within me, we are starting to see more and more material and content created 
that gives people accessibility to uh you know historical events things uh centered and grounded uh in, in black history from a black perspective or uh you know black and brown narratives that aren't uh used to being lifted up or centered and for me i guess my angle into this lot much larger conversation is the is that i am trying to get people to understand that how someone is historically shaped how society mm -hmm. is historically shaped matters and if we choose to ignore someone's historical shaping we are dishonoring god we are dishonoring the imago day in that person and we are setting ourselves up to either have one or two one woeful ignorance or two willful ignorance and they're distinct i think woeful ignorance is this type of ignorance or, or not knowing um where you you just don't know you keep yourself maybe distant or uh, you're not proximate and um you just don't know you're like not in the know about how something is impacting someone else and i think that um does our neighbors a great deal of disservice in that we are called to love our neighbors as we love ourselves and a part of that is trying to understand who our neighbor is where do our neighbor what is where does our neighbor come from what are the issues that the neighborhood faces that our neighbor emerges from right and so there's a deeper sense of work that needs to happen with that that powerful passage in scripture and as long as we stay distant we also can uphold the woeful ignorance. The willful ignorance is uh, this type of ignorance that is rooted in stubbornness and pride. It's the grounding yourself in your own sense of ideology or reality that is that props itself up as being dismissive or even um uh it can attack somebody else's lived experience and it becomes almost like driven by pride in a way where the scripture says you know that pride itself can become so dangerous it can cause destruction right and that destruction can lead to greater division greater lack of empathy a greater lack of compassion etc and that's all rooted in pride and stubbornness right and i think a large part of that sort of ignorance that is driven by this stubbornness keeps us from loving neighbor as we love ourselves and this is the ignorance that we kind of see kind of like spreading across the country with history erasure the removing of books the banning of books the not giving access to uh the knowledge our shared history 
the historical understanding of our our brothers and sisters who who may also be in the faith right with us yeah. and um you know I, I think i'm i'm writing this book to remind us that we need to remember that great call that we have uh to love neighbor as we love ourselves after we have loved loved God with everything, right? Because it's grounded in that. And I think that could drive some of the solidarity that I'm trying to lift up in terms of man, historical things still having an impact. Hmm. Bro. I, I, uh, I'll give you one example. Yeah. Uh, two Sundays ago, my 91-year-old grandmother, who is still alive, very cognizant, still walks two miles, um, can sit you down and uh, what she would say, teach you a thing or two, right? Um, she visits the Dignity Museum. It's the museum our organization started that represents the subject of homelessness. And so her daughter, my aunt, and wanted to surprise her with a visit because she loves museums and et cetera. And so I'll never forget, she pulled up uh, Brentson, uh, which is my my uncle is bringing her. She gets out, she's really surprised. And I say, hey, granny, I'm, you know, I'm gonna be your tour guide today. I do the whole spiel. And I'm walking her around this museum and I'm talking about the reasons I created it, you know, the number of people who have come, et cetera. And we get back to the back of the museum. And um, I remember something that she told me when I was probably eight years old. She said, one day you're going to be a preacher. She used to drag me to church, not drag me because I used to go. She says I was the only grandchild that would go. And um, I said, what made you say that? She, she says, I don't know. I just... You just seem like you would be doing this work because you always like to help people. And then she goes into this litany of her own story. She says, but I remember I couldn't do nothing like this. I say, what you mean? She says, because I grew up in segregation. And in vivid detail, she described how segregation caused her to have to stand outside in the back of restaurants, how she wasn't able to sit in the front of the bus. She remembers the signs over water fountains and the inaccessibility to have work uh, in one of the most well-known department stores when it was in the heart of the city. She described to me in how she couldn't visit museums and how poverty and black neighborhoods was concentrated due to de jure laws or public policy that prohibited um, black and black people from accessing FHH uh, housing loans. And she, I mean, she talked about this in grave detail. She's still alive. Like I can yeah. call her right now, she'll text me. And so she's not just history, a history book, She's a living historical epistle. Mm -hmm. And in her mind, she can make connections about some of the realities that we see 
fleshing out in our society, even to this very moment. And to deny that is to be in that willful ignorance category. Hmm. And that's kind of like what I'm saying, bro. Like I wasn't taught black history in high school, K through 12. It wasn't until I was out of school, I had to search and find the type of information that would give me access to who I was, who my people were and what we endured outside of the oral traditions that were passed down through my grandparents. And I just sit with that. And that's just, that's just granny. Mm. I could talk about my other grandmother and my grandfather who I took to the bookstore to when I see you was on the shelf in Barnes and Noble and how they talked to me about their parents and their grandparents, grandparents who could not read because it was against the law, you know, and they're both still alive. And so I guess I'm basically coming into this conversation is that if we are truly to stand in solidarity with one another, that we've got to confront uh, parts of history that we have ignored and that we are seeking to erase. Mm-hmm. You know, just as you were talking, the the thing that it made me think about, and this is true uh, in all areas of history, like even in school, you think about, we're taught like the historical facts of it. You know, this happened when and where and all of that stuff. Uh, but what you're talking about is the impact, the impact yes. of history which yeah. is often not really talked about about at all. It's more like this happened then. And then we get caught in like what's happening today. And we forget that just what you're saying that happened in your grandmother's lifetime. Like, yeah. 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 And it's still some, just because something happened years ago, doesn't mean that it's not still having an impact mm-hmm. present moment. For instance, we were talking about the accident that I was in earlier. Mm-hmm. And this is just a, a very, very small example. I experienced trauma. I have plates and rods in my body. I can walk around again now. And in many cases, I've gone into environments and I've told people what happened to me. And you know what they would say to me? No way. It doesn't look like that. It does. Look at how you're moving. You could probably jog right now. I mean, just go on and on and on. And you know what that does to me, bro? It. It causes more harm. Because there is no empathy built into. Oh, you can do this now because I'm seeing you present day. Oh, you know, this would, that happened a year ago. Like, look at how far you've come, you know, and not realizing that each morning I still have pain in my body. I have lingering effects, all of those things. And I use that example because it's real to me in this moment, but also like, just think about a public policy that caused redlining that concentrated poverty in black communities 
where no land was being able to be accessed. Uh, wealth is tied to land. Uh, just think about the impacts and the implications of segregation, right? Think about the schools who recently um, decided to uh, <clears throat> ban uh, books, historical records and facts and things like that. And one of the people, uh, I think <laughs> the very uh, first person uh, uh, who integrated the school uh, is 68 years old and she's still alive and her name is Ruby Bridges. <laughs> and her experience is not being able to be played in certain schools, right? And so, mm -hmm. bro, it's just because something happened in history doesn't mean the sustained effects isn't still showing up in some mm -hmm. ways. That's the difference between the jure law, right? In many ways, we don't see some of the same laws. In many ways, we do. They're just written in other ways, but becomes de facto. It's just by fact, and it is in the heart of a person. So, right, let's just say there's no more uh, federally mandated laws that say you can't lend loans to black people to buy houses, right? Let's just say that. Mm -hmm. Okay. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's not in the heart of the person to deny a loan or to say, we don't want this type of person in the community. You, you get what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. yep. I'm just saying like, we, we have to be cognizant of that. And it's not to single out any any white person i just have to say that because sometimes people i you know i didn't i wasn't back then and I, I didn't do this and it's now these days it's more about the institution and the structure that was created that creates this sustained impact on people mm -hmm. you know one of the the ideas that you've uh, just mentioned a couple of times, and it's very prominent throughout the book, is uh, solidarity. Yeah. And, you know, just as uh, I know we're, we're moving close to the end of our time, but I'd love for you to kind of unpack what is solidarity? What do we think solidarity is that it isn't? And what does it actually look like? Yeah. Let me ask you, though, what made you... Um, what made you... be drawn to that word solidarity. And then I'll, I'll uh, share. You know, I, for this conversation, what made me drawn to is I just heard you mention it a couple of times. And so mm. I wanted to follow up on that. And the other thing, whenever I think of solidarity, I think of like, we're in like the people who are in solidarity with each other are in what right relationship with each yes. other. Yes. We're, we're equals. We're staying. Like I think of us, we're standing on equal ground. We view each other yes. as equals. Yes. Yeah. And <clears throat> I should that, say we view and treat each other as equals. Yes. View, treat each other as equals, same ground. And we also believe that equity is important. Um, and justice is important. 
Mm-hmm. Um, when I write about solidarity as a framework in the book, I give like a practical call to action and also like a theological understanding. And saying solidarity is when we lament with others, mm-hmm. that we create space for people to lament to deeply lament and genuinely lament with other people. Um, You know, lament is a part of the scripture. Lamentation is a part of, you know, a framework of just being a believer. Uh, We listen to others, right? That's rooted in scripture. Uh, James talks about listening, right? Jesus was very good at listening uh, to people. So uh, not only do we lament, but we create healthy spaces where people can share without fear or censorship, right? Because solidarity is not about censorship. Um, And you talked about this word equality. Solidarity is also about learning from others, right? Because sometimes um, we have seen in, in, in the past where it becomes almost this hierarchical uh, you learn from me. I can know. I can't learn from you. Um, and Jesus Himself said, "Like, yo, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve <laughs> mm-hmm. and give my life." And I think learning from others helps you expand your limited perspective, so you can learn more how to stand with people that may emerge from a different social location than you. I think immersion is also a part of that in the book of John chapter one reminds us that Jesus is one who dwelt among people. Like we take time to immerse ourselves in the world of others uh, to understand um, a a view that may not be our own. Um, Solidarity is also about showing compassion and empathy, right? Uh, in Ephesians, right, uh, the writer here, uh, uh, the epistle writer is reminding us that compassion is central to the gospel. And not only compassion is central to the gospel, but it also requires humility, right? Uh, and we have to embody that if we're going to stand in solidarity with other people, um, that we also physically stand alongside other people. Solidarity is not just about, you know, uh, lamenting and listening and learning and immersion and having compassion, but it's being actively involved, engaged alongside other people. Um, And it's also about using your voice in a way uh, that centers um, people and lifts up their humanity. And I think we see that in the way in which Jesus comes to earth and lives uh, during his earthly ministry. And I think all of those causes us to be this one word that I'm after is proximate. Mm -hmm. Solidarity is about proximity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say you're solid. The whole book is great. The solidarity framework in itself is worth the price of the book. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thanks. Uh, Thanks. Yeah. Um, You know, just as, just as we're wrapping up, 
I know that there's tons of different things that we could talk about, many different ideas that we could talk about in the book. Is there anything uh, just top of mind that you want to make sure that we talk about any ideas or anything that we've been talking about? Man, I, I would just say that, you know, I'm just really passionate about, I'm hoping that this work gives very practical steps for people to grapple with maybe their uh the spots that they may be unaware about but they grapple with it in a way where it provokes them to be in proximate relationships with other people and i think that's where the solidarity and the glory of god can see redemption that we're all longing for in this moment because that is what we're longing for um bro it is hard. It's hard in society and culture to see not just America, but the world go through a global pandemic, which has been deemed an endemic now. It is hard to see people grapple with uh, inflation and unaffordability, uh, moving from being housed to unhoused. It's hard uh, having watched um, people being able to afford to living out of the uh, out of two cars as a family. It's hard to see uh, politicians go at each other um, in very volatile ways. It's hard to see people not have empathy towards the injustices that plagues a community. It's hard to see churches divided, to be uh to see the name of Jesus being used more as a weapon than for something that is drawing uh as Jesus says, all people unto myself. And so it's hard. And I think that we need a message right now that not only challenges and convicts people, but also gives people a greater hope that solidarity is possible. Mm, yeah. Well, Terrence, I know that people are going to want to pick up your book, All God's Children, and keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Yeah, so uh, people can reach out to me at my website. That's terrencelester.org, or they can follow me on social media. That's I'm Terrence Lester. I am T-E-R-E-N-C-E-L-E-S-T-E-R. And that's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Awesome. Well, Terrence, thanks so much for being back on the podcast today. Thanks for your vulnerability as well. And just thanks for, for doing the work and for a great conversation. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really excited. So coming out of that conversation with Terrence, there's really two things that I just want to touch on a little bit more about that were talked about in there. The one was the the idea that I mentioned of sometimes we learn the facts of history, but we don't always learn about the impact that history made. And so we learn about, you know, this war took place, this bill was enacted, you know, this this historical event happened. But we don't talk about 
well, what did that do then? What did that lead to happen? How did people respond to that event that happened? What effect did that have on people? Was it harmful to them? Did it did it help them? Why did they enact that event? What what started that event? What's behind that event? And and not learning the the impact of the historical event or what led to that historical event that ended up happening. And I think that's part of the reason why it's so important for us to learn history, to learn the effect that that events that people have had on other people to learn the impact that history has had on other people and not just what ended up happening to people, but how that affected them. And maybe in some cases, how what happened impacted their family or them for, for generations or for decades. The other thing that I want to talk about and, you know, he, Terrence talked about it towards the end, and I just want to drive that point home even more, is he talked about proximity. And it was either in his book or it was in somebody else's book that I was reading. I think it was in Terrence's. And it's this idea of, you know, if you want to get to know people, you have to go where they're at. You have to be in proximity to people. And so... If you see somebody in your life and you go, wow, I wish that my my life was different or wow, I wish that I that I knew this person or wish I was closer to this person. Then the question is, is well, are, are you where they are? Are you making yourself available? Are you going to where they currently are? Are you in proximity to them? And if not, then what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do to close that gap, to close that distance between them? Because I would say, as followers of Jesus, we're meant to close the gap. We're meant to close the distance. We're meant to be in proximity to people, especially to those that we would say that we love, that we love. Because it's hard to love from a distance. It's hard to love whenever you're not proximate. And so... What do we need to do to become more, to become closer, to become more in proximity to the people that we love and we care about? So those are just a couple of the things that this conversation got me thinking about. And if you want to continue to learn from me and some of the other things that I'm currently, you know, engaging in, you know, please head to the Substack. You get all the recommendations and things that I'm learning about from there. And... You know, I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you to Terrence for being on the podcast for a great conversation. Please check out his book. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.